Welcome to It's Not a Crisis. I am your host, Doran Wallach. I'm an entrepreneur, a mother of two, a wife, and a 40-something trying to figure out what is happening in this decade. Why is no one talking about it? I created this podcast to help women in their late 30s and 40s to figure out what is going on in our mind, body, soul, and life. We may laugh, we may cry, we may get frustrated, but most importantly, my goal is to make this next chapter of life positive. I'm also full of my own questions and I'm here to go on this journey with you. So let's do it together. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode. Thank you again for joining me. I am your host, Doran Mollick, and so excited to have you here. I am thrilled about this episode because I read this book a while ago and it was life-changing for me and I was honored that Dr. Gibson said that she would come on the show. So this is going to be an amazing uh, episode that you're going to learn so much from and I promise you, anyone, everyone should read that book. When you read the book, you will realize how life-changing it is. Lindsay Gibson has been a clinical psychologist for over 30 years, specializing in helping people find their true selves and recover their self-esteem after dealing with emotionally immature people. Her psychotherapy work has included both public and private practice settings. She also was an adjunct assistant professor for many years, training doctoral students in a graduate psychology program. As an author, Dr. Gibson has written three books, Who You Were Meant to Be, Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, and Recovering from Emotionally Immature Parents. Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents has been a five-star rated bestseller on Amazon in various categories with over 3,000 reviews and has been translated into 14 languages. That's because the book is phenomenal. Her next book, A Self-Care Companion for Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, will be released in fall 2021, and I'm so excited for that one. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Lindsay Gibson to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lindsay Gibson. I am so honored that you are here today and that you chose to come on. It's not a crisis. Oh, it's it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Doran. I have been obsessed with your book since I first read it, and I use it as a reference in my life. And I just wanted to explain quickly sort of how I came across it without revealing too much about my family's privacy. But a, a therapist had said to me at some point to read this. And I said, well, I don't, I mean, I wasn't neglected. I wasn't rejected. I, you know, I had some things as a child, but I was very loved by my parents. And she said, no, I, no, I, I, it doesn't matter. Just read it. I promise you will take something from it. And so uh, I did. And I couldn't believe how loudly it spoke to me in so, on so many different levels. And as I was reading it, I was thinking about 12 different friends that could benefit from this book. It just describes so many people that I know and why they're the way they are. And these are friends with lovely, wonderful parents, you know, but uh, the way their parents were raised and their parents were raised uh, um, often affects the generations and things get carried down. And we obviously want to try to resolve those things as much as possible with our parents, but also uh, parenting our own children. And, And I found that your book allowed me 
to forgive my parents for things that were beyond their control. And that, that to me is the biggest gift ever because they're getting older and, you know, I never want to feel that when they're gone, um, I wasn't able to understand. And after reading your book, I, I actually sat down with each of them and I asked them a lot of questions and it really helped me to, um, to, to understand them better. So thank you for coming on. I think this is going to be a really popular podcast. And I think uh, a lot of people are going to be running out to buy this when we're done. Oh, uh, well, you know, I, I cannot contain my curiosity. What sorts of things did you ask your parents? I asked them about, you know, what were your, what were your parents like emotionally? What kind of pressures uh, did they put on you or, um, wh what were their parents like? How were they treated affectionately? What were rules like in your family? Um, you know, my, I've said this on other podcasts, my mom's really mad at me, but I already said it. So I'm going to say it again. My mom, um, uh, had an alcoholic father and, uh, my dad, I think his parents were wonderful, but a little bit emotionally distant at a, a certain point in um, his mother's life when he was younger. I think she suffered from postpartum depression and, and it was kind of undiagnosed at that time. I was able to hear them and, and, and they both wanted to get out of their homes really young and they got, they, they got married at 23 and they met at 16 and you know, eventually they divorced and, and, and it was very traumatic for my mother who also lost her mother and her grandmother and her and my dad's mother, who she was close with all at a certain time of her life. So then I think my dad was just one more loss. And, uh, and, and then when she went through divorce with my dad, she had a hard time with it. And I suffered as a child because I, um, sort of had to step in and, and parent a little bit. Uh, it was just interesting to hear them speak. And it was just, it just made me actually so much closer with them. Yeah. I, I, I just had to ask you because, you know, a lot of times, people will have the instinct that they want to go to their parents, especially after they've read a book like mine that points out these dynamics. Um, but the way that they go to their parents is often either, and I think, I think these are fine because I think they're honest communications, but they'll go to them in the spirit of, let me tell you what you've done to me, or they'll go at it with uh, sort of the expectation that they will be able to convince or persuade the parent to be different if only they understood what they were doing to them. But your approach was really cool because what you did was you went in and you asked them questions that were likely not to make them defensive, but were to make them, uh, you know, sort of the object of your interest. And that always, that calms all of us down. Let me tell you, both of my parents are super stubborn and defensive. <laughs> so I, I, they, they, they're slow to warm up to things. They'll, they usually come around. So I knew that going in. Um, and, and, and I just sent the book to my mom the other day. And my stepfather got really angry and was like, that's ridiculous. You were an amazing mother. Tell her. Da, 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 da. And I said, mom. And I, you know, my, I explained, I said, mom, I'm not giving you this book to say that you're a, you were a terrible mother. I think you're going to learn about your own parents in this book. I think it's going to help you to understand who you are. And I think it's really an important thing for everybody to do that work. So she got it, but he's very, you know, and I, he's been my stepfather since 
I was 12, basically. He's very, you know, black and white about certain things, as are some men. That approach, I think, really works. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit later. I think it's important not to blame. I think it's important to ask questions and, and, and empathize with them from their own journey. I do empathize with my mom and dad and how they grew up and also the generations that came before them and the way that they dealt with parenting. Can you explain? I think I think it's probably confusing. Can you explain what emotional immaturity is and how we would know if we were surrounded by it in our lives? Sure, yeah. Well, emotional maturity and immaturity is kind of like if you think about a person's development as proceeding along like these sort of parallel lines, like you can have your line of emotional development. The way a three-year-old thinks is not the way a 12-year-old thinks. You can have a, another line that has to do with your social development, how a three-year-old relates to other people is different from a 12-year-old, you know, like that. But the emotional maturity is its own line of development. And you can have very uneven lines. Like um, if you want to think about it, you could think about any kind of graph, you know, like imagine a stock market graph, only this time you're measuring strength of qualities. So in some qualities, some lines of development, you might be very high and others, you might be low, you know, like that. If you are emotionally immature, but you are intellectually mature, that's very confusing to people because they say, well, you know, this person is very uh, smart. Um, you know, they're very accomplished. They're very successful. How could how could they be immature in any way? Because they're functioning so well as an adult. But emotional maturity, like I say, is its own particular developmental line of development. So, for instance, if you're emotionally immature, it means that you're functioning as a much younger person might do, who was kind of stuck. At a, at a certain level emotionally, even though they developed in a bunch of other areas. And often they get stuck because of some kind of trauma. It's like something happens to them that, that kind of makes, makes it unsafe for them to continue developing in their emotional development. But basically what happens is that they end up being stuck at a level where they're functioning uh, in terms of being able to handle their emotions, being able to deal with reality and being able to have empathy for other people, maybe more like a four-year-old than a 40-year-old. And so if you think about what four-year-olds are like, you think about their, their egocentrism, everything's about me, everything is taken personally, their emotions dominate their view of the world. Like one of the things that emotionally immature people do, which is very hard to spot until you know what it is, and then you see it immediately, they do this thing that's called affective realism. And that means that they determine reality on the basis of how it feels to them. So reality is what I feel it to be. If you are more objective in your view of reality, it just you know, staggers your belief that someone could sit there and tell you something that is so untrue factually, but in terms of how it feels to them, that's what they are basing their opinion of reality on. And so their relationship to reality is that they, they either deny it, distort it, or dismiss it. 
And it's all around defending themselves from any kind of insecurity or threat to their self-esteem or to their security. So they have a great fear of emotions, other people's emotions, and of emotional intimacy because emotions are kind of stressful and emotionally immature people have a very low tolerance for stress. Emotions make it so that we have to be flexible and very in the moment. And they have a lot of trouble doing that because they get terrified when they are not held together by their rules and their beliefs and often, you know, their, their kind of uh, rigidity. So they maintain their self-esteem and their sense of stability by doing things like blaming other people, insisting that you stay in a certain role with them, expecting you to mirror them, that is to be exactly how they need you to be. And they make you responsible for their self-esteem and their emotional stability. So you fall into a, like you were talking about the, uh, the parentification that happened with you. It falls to you to keep them happy or to restabilize them. And if you're a child when that happens, that really sucks energy out of you. And it's very emotionally demanding to be around these people. Um, the other last thing I would mention about it is that emotionally immature people have a very poor what they call receptive capacity. And that means that even though they seem very needy in terms of what they uh, require from you in the relationship, no matter how much you give them, it's never enough. It's kind of like pouring water through a sieve. It's like they continue to uh, quote unquote need what you have to give them but as you are giving it to them, it just like it doesn't stick. And they are momentarily comforted by the interaction, but it's not something that they can take in and grow from. It's something that they have a continued need for, and that can make them very draining. So how does that differ from narcissism? Well, first of all, I stayed away from any psychopathological terms, any diagnostic terms in the book, um, because once you slap a label on somebody, it tends to demonize them a little bit. Yeah. 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 And nobody wants to demonize their parents. No, I think that was the point of your book is, is yeah. not to demonize. Right. Once you say, you know, that someone is narcissistic or some other diagnostic category, then the whole quest becomes, well, you know, how are they maybe not narcissistic? So is this a right diagnosis or not? And I didn't want any obsessing about that. I just wanted to describe a set of behaviors and interactions that is common with these people. So think of it like there's emotional immaturity as a general uh, characteristic that has many signs that are pretty invariable across people. So that's one big subset of, of, a, of an issue. And then narcissism would be a subset of that because not all emotionally immature people would strike you immediately as narcissistic, but a lot of uh, people who are emotionally immature will have some narcissistic qualities. Got it. Okay. 
That, that makes sense. And and how would you describe someone who's emotionally mature? Yeah, well, emotionally mature people are easy to be around <laughs> because they they kind of have their batteries included. You're not always feeling like they're looking to you to calm them down, make them feel better. In fact, they're they're more likely to be doing that for you. Basically, they are flexible. They have a good sense of self. So they're not depending on other people to bolster their self-esteem or stabilize them when they get upset. They're able to do that internally because they have a, a well-developed, articulated sense of self that can be flexible and oriented toward reality as they cope because they're not they're not consumed with insecurity and anxiety all the time. They tend to be more complex people in that they can they can think and feel at the same time. For the immature emotionally immature person, they can think and they can feel, but they have a really hard time doing those two things together. <laughs> and that's why when people, you know, kind of come at them in a way that makes them anxious, their thinking function shuts down and they become extremely rigid. But with an emotionally mature person, they are able to kind of step back and continue to hear what you're saying objectively, even if they don't like it, even if it's upsetting to them, they retain their ability to think and feel at the same time. And then a huge difference is that the emotionally mature person is able to feel empathy for the other person and they are able to put themselves in your shoes. And this makes them able to be fair in their dealings with people. They're able to basically love. They're fine with emotional intimacy. They can tolerate emotion, which is not something that emotionally immature people are able to do. They, they get scared when things get too emotionally intimate. Do you feel that um, emotionally immature people tend to feel like everyone's out to get them in some ways? Yeah, it may not be uh, clinical paranoia, <laughs> but, but it makes sense because um, our coping mechanisms and our defenses are also on a kind of a hierarchy of maturity. And down there in the level of immaturity, psychological defenses are geared toward blaming and projecting responsibility onto other people. So there is that kind of paranoid quality of uh, seeing the problem as being outside of themselves and blaming other people, definitely. Before we go further, um, what led you to write these books? I can still tell you kind of how I felt sitting in the office when it hit me. <laughs> So I was in a psychotherapy with, with someone and I don't remember who it is now, but uh, I was sitting there with them and they were describing, I think they were fairly new client and they were describing about their childhood and, and their parent and their continuing problem with their parent and what was going on. And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, wow, their parent sounds like a four-year-old. And then the next thought that hit me was, what is this person doing here when the real problem is this emotionally immature person who is causing all this havoc in the family? And this person's come to see me is full of anxiety because they're having to deal with this, you know, difficult person. 
So it was sort of like, wait a minute, the wrong person is in my office. But the right person wouldn't come to your office. That's exactly right. That's, <laughs> right. Yes. They're never wrong. That com- combination of, um, of, you know, like, wow, you know, what is this, what is this person doing here? And man, uh, you know, their, their parents sound like children. But I also, Doran, came to this through my training because I did a lot of training in psychological testing. And in psychological testing, one of the things that makes a personality description useful to another clinician, you know, say the, the person who's requested the testing of their, of their client, the thing that's really helpful to them is when you can say, this person psychologically is functioning like a five-year-old, or this person is functioning like a 15-year-old. If you have that developmental perspective when you're writing up a personality evaluation, it really helps people, you know, quickly get the idea of of what they're working with and what some of the obstacles are going to be. So I was really trained heavily in developmental psychology. That makes sense. I, and by the way, um, your book has. 2,702 ratings on Amazon, five stars, number one bestseller in parent and adult relationships. That must feel good. But and why Why do you think uh, it's so popular? What, what need did it hit? Well, I think it put into words something that had not been put into words before. And of course, you know, you know the power of naming something. Once you can name something and describe it, you can deal with it so much better um, and when you read something that describes an experience that you've had and not only describes it, but tells you why, um, it, it's a very powerful, uh, experience of being empathized with and being seen. Like what a lot of readers have, have, um, communicated to me is that it's like, they say it's, it's like I was in their in their living room when they were growing up. Yes. Yes. Or, that's how I felt. Yeah. Or like, how did you know all these things about me? <laughs> right. <laughs> so funny. Sometimes my listeners say that to me. They're like, how did you know I was no, going through yeah. this? <laughs> so I think that that seemed to be the main thing that people felt, I think for the first time, they felt really mirrored, like really seen, really responded to in an area that had caused them great distress but in a kind of an underlying background way, and also in a way that they didn't feel like they had a leg to stand on in terms of complaining about it or even knowing what to complain about it. They just knew that they felt bad. And I think the popularity of the book was that it put into words something that people were trying to get a handle on, but they couldn't conceptualize because they didn't have the the words for it. And I think I think that you um, I'm not sure if I said this at the beginning or before we recorded, but but I think it relates to so many different types of people that I think you you know, the, the title of the book is good because it makes you think a little bit. But also, I have to sometimes convince people, no, 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 you, I know you think you might not relate to this book, but you will. I promise you. And, and every time I have done that, friends have said, Oh my God, I, I really did. And, and and even with my own mother, I said, you know, you, I, I really think you should read this. I think you know, her mother died young at 58. My mom is 28 and her father died later in life, but was, you know, a little difficult at that point in his life. And I really think that she could see her parents in here. It's interesting also, uh, 
generationally, I'm actually having a guest come on in a few weeks. She's a generational expert and she's going to be just talking about different generations and the way that they were raised and the way that they, what they were taught about emotion or they were taught about parenting or, you know, what was happening in their lives. Oh, wow. I'll, I'll look forward to that one. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that your book somewhat speaks to that too, you know, it, it, without, without being as uh, detailed as that. I'll tell you when I was reading this book and, and as a mom, I'm always fearful of being a bad mom and I want to do the best I can. And I love being a mom, but I do sometimes like all of us, I'll see myself doing something that maybe one of my parents did that, that I didn't like. And it's scary to me because I'm like, Oh my God, I, did, I couldn't even help what I just did. I, you know, I was, I was modeling something that I, that I only have ever known. I guess, how do we, A, not be so hard on ourselves if that does happen, but B, how do we learn to um, improve upon that? If we feel that we're being emotionally immature or that we're gaining, you know, we're, we're mirroring something that our parents did. Yeah. Yeah. You know, somebody once said, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters what you do next. And that's not absolutely true. Right. Right. But I think for a lot of things, it is true, especially in relationships. So I'm just curious after you um, did something that, that you wondered about, like, did you have a sense that you wished you hadn't done that? Yes. Okay. All right. See what that tells me is that what you did, Doran, was you self-reflected, right? So you you reflected on your behavior. You reflected on the feeling that you had after you did it. That That's the main thing. So you were able to self-reflect, feel the feeling, and realize that you didn't feel good. And maybe you even had empathy for your child because you could see that however you responded to them didn't help them. So in those cases, if you continue to process why you may have responded like that. And you come up with the answer like, yeah, I, I wanted to be a better mom, but that just hit me in an area that's very hard for me to talk about or very hard for me to um, think about. And so I think I reacted defensively. Just I had a knee-jerk reaction and I'm not proud of that. I wish I hadn't, but it just kind of got me. That might be everything that goes on inside of you as you process what happened. But you can always go back to your child and say kind of the same thing to them. You know, like, honey, I want to talk to you about what happened yesterday. And then you might share with them uh, some of your insights. And it doesn't have to be a long involved uh, psychoanalysis, but just that you realized that you got triggered by something and you reacted in a way that, you know, had you been able to, to stay calmer or not be so surprised by it, maybe you would have handled it differently because you would have been able to think about how it would affect them and their feelings. And you can apologize. You can say, I'm really sorry that, that I did that. And I hope that you'll forgive me. You're actively giving your child understanding and empathy when they probably have not asked for it at that point. You're going back in, you're saying, here's what, and you're also modeling for them as a parent. Here's what you can do when you stepped in it with somebody. You process what happened. You take responsibility. 
you go back in and you try to let the other person know that you're sorry and ask them if they can forgive you. It's not only repairing, that that's called relationship repair. You're, you're not only repairing the relationship with your child around that incident, but you're also showing them, look, there are other options other than beating yourself up <laughs> when you make a mistake. And you can work it out with other people if you're sincere and authentic with them. It's funny, my parents, when they were younger, that was a lot harder for them. But as they get older now in their 70s, the first reaction is usually defensive. And then they stop and process and come back and say, you know what, you're right. I, you know, I, I shouldn't have said it like that or whatever. You have to understand that when I was growing up, it was different or, you know, whatever it is. And, and I, and I can see, uh, you know, the, the difference in them as older adults and having processed their own life. So I think that there's, you know, there's, there's hope for stubborn parents who won't admit when they've done something wrong. Yeah, uh, I, I just wanted to mention something um, because I know that you gear your podcast to a certain age group that uh, I believe it's like the late thirties, forties. Am I correct? Yeah. Okay. And so if you think about everything that you are facing in that age group, I mean, where you are in your life, you're in the in the um, early to middle part of of doing your career. If you if you have a career, you may be raising children. You certainly are dealing with all kinds of adult stresses because there's you know great pressure to hit certain benchmarks of development in our society. And if you haven't hit this one by that time, <laughs> you know, and like everybody freaks out, like, you know, life is over. Um, but the pressures on you from multiple fronts are likely to really make worse any underlying tendencies toward rigidity um, and insecurity, right? Because it's just so much more stress. And so emotionally immature people do not handle stress well. They're very impatient. They just can't handle it. But then you compare what is life like when you're in your 70s? And kind of a lot of these life questions have been answered one way or the other. I mean, life has happened. Um, you're not waiting to find out what you're going to be in your life, if you're going to make it, a lot of the suspense is, is out of your life at that point over some of these major issues. And so I think at that point in your life, you have, uh, if you're fortunate, if you're fortunate, I should say, because I think life can get harder if you're not. But if you're fortunate and some of those stresses have been um, taken care of and you've moved into retirement, you have more resources available to maybe be able to come back. Not, not every parent is like that, like yours, but I think it makes sense that they could be if they're in a time in their life when they have less uh, stuff on their plate. Yeah, that's true. There are a lot of people who will never get through to their parents. Um, and that's unfortunate. I'm lucky that mine were more receptive to, to listening. What do you think the biggest difficulty people face with their parents is, or, and also we should also mention, by the way, that having emotional immaturity in your life doesn't necessarily always relate to your parents, right? I, I, as you said in your book, I think um, you can go on to see that you might find friendships or other relationships that mirror 
you know, what you grew up with or what you were used to and whether that those are negative or positive. I, I think that I've learned that in friendships. Once I did this work myself, I started to realize that like, oh, that's why I was friends with that girl, you know, and, and, and I, and I no longer am, but it was, a um, it was giving me something that I thought I needed based on, you know, what I needed as a kid. I, I, I'm not sure I'm explaining that correctly, but what are the difficulties that our generation is facing? Well, as I mentioned before, it's an incredibly busy time, um, with all these societal and developmental challenges. Um, you know, have you done this by the age of 30? Have you done this by the age of 35? Have you done this by the age of 40? <laughs> you have these, uh, it's kind of like you're on, you're on a evaluation timeline. Uh, and this is all tends to be very subconscious. I don't know how many people, you know, come for therapy when they turn 30 or turn 40 or turn 50. You know, we, we are keeping track at some level in our mind about how we're doing. But those ages, the late 30s and early 40s, that is when you are, you know, doing the career stuff. If you have children, you're doing that. And it's very it's a very demanding age. And you may be dealing with multiple drains on your time and your energy. Like if you uh, are working and you have children or you're, you're trying to maintain uh, a relationship. And a lot of people are in caretaking mode for their parents at this oh, yeah. age. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And then you have the additional issue of parents who are sort of coming in and wanting to be, well, I started to say involved in your life, but that's not really what I mean. Not that exactly. It's that they want to create the kind of role or story they want to have with you and maybe your children or you and your life. So they may be ready for more visits. Maybe they have more time on their hands. They want to have more time with the grandchildren or, you know, they don't want to have anything to do with the grandchildren. Whatever it is, when their emotional needs are coming in and you are expected to stay in some rigid child mode with them that keeps them feeling secure and good about themselves, you can, you can see the conflict that that would stir up because you simply, you know, in that age group, you simply don't have the energy or the time to be doing that for your parents while everything else is demanding you in your life. And so that's a time where the parents' demands or expectations can be especially onerous and they can also they can also end up making you feel like you're being stretched way too thin or that you're being intruded upon like there can be boundaries that you want to set because you know maybe you want to do thanksgiving with your own family this year instead of traveling to be with um, your parents uh, these things are like uh, <laughs> greeted not not well <laughs> by by emotionally mature parents because they 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 don't have the flexibility to deal with change very well. It's extreme transitions are extremely stressful for them, and their behavior tends to get worse when you're going through any kind of transition. So when you have to set boundaries with them, what often happens is that they don't see it that you're in a bad way and you need to uh, protect yourself or you need to get some extra time to yourself. 
they take it personally and they will challenge the boundaries that you set instead of saying, oh, okay, I, I understand. Um, you must be exhausted. No, it's that, oh, I must be the worst mother ever then. Uh, or does this mean you're never coming home for a holiday again? You know, they go into these disaster scenarios. <laughs> it's very hard to be doing everything else that you're doing in your life and then to be dealing with uh, older parents who may have expectations of you that really you know, can't be met anymore because you have so much on your plate. And then if it's a caretaking mode you know, with older parents, that just exacerbates it even more because people don't get more mature and more resilient when they get old and sick. They have fewer resources with which to deal with stress. So, you know, a lot more falls on people in your age group. Right. And I think that boundaries are really difficult. I, I think, you know, our our parents have this mentality of like, I worked my butt off to get you where you were and to get you into college and a little bit of a you owe me type of attitude because of how they were raised. And, you know, I think that there's that guilt that um, when we try to put up boundaries, we feel that we're not we're not allowed to have those boundaries because we owe it to um, our parents. Absolutely. Yeah, that is real. I mean, and, and that is often very explicitly um, laid out there by the parent. I paid for your college. I did this. I did that. Right. I try not to do that with my kids. Like if I get annoyed with them on something, I try not to be like, you know what? Like we work to do all this stuff for you guys. And like, we're always, you know, trying to make you happy and you're so ungrateful. You know, you get to that mode sometimes with them because you feel like, God, can I do nothing right? You can gauge how well you've done with your kids by what they're complaining about. So if they're complaining about, you know, that they haven't gotten this or they haven't gotten to do that, that's a really high order complaint as opposed to, you know, you don't listen to me, you hit me. Those are serious complaints. But you can kind of tell, because people will complain all the time. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Uh, human beings complain. And so you have to look at the quality of the complaint to see how well you're doing, not whether or not they're complaining. Oh, that's great advice. Uh, a lot of my podcast is about permission. And I find that myself in my 40s, I need people to give me permission and say it's okay, or this is, you know, this is what it is. And um, I think as my children get older, you get a lot more feedback. I think when they're younger, it's a lot harder to to not feel like you're doing a terrible job day in and day out because you're not seeing what you've created. So when I guess even my kids at 10 and 13, when um, my children go somewhere and, and somebody says to me, oh, your, your kids were so polite. They have such good manners and, 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 and they were so well behaved. And I'm like, what? My, really? Jordan, I, w I wanted to mention too what you, you were saying about, you know, saying to your kid, we've done all this for you and we've knocked ourselves out for you, whatever. I don't think that that is as a uh, conversation um, something that is detrimental to a child. If the point is that you are trying to say, look, in this relationship, you and me as two human beings, okay, you're a 13 year old, I'm a 40 year old, but in our relationship as human beings together, I'm feeling unfairly treated because I feel like I have given all of this to you. 
And I have really knocked myself out to make sure that you have what you need for your best development. And now you're treating me like I never think about you. And that hurts my feelings because my whole adult life has been spent thinking about you guys. And I feel hurt that you sort of blanketly blame me uh, as if I didn't care about you at all. And then the child can say whatever they want to say. But that is sort of like real emotional intimacy. You're telling them when you say things like that to me, it hurts me because here's what I thought I was doing and here's what I intend to do. So in other words, that also models for them that you can talk about difficult stuff like that. And you can bring in just like you would with a, with a friend or a mate you would say, look, I, I feel like I've been doing all of this and I don't feel like it's reciprocal. That's a fair statement. And it also educates the other person about how things may have gotten kind of lopsided. So there's nothing wrong with doing that, just because I don't want parents to think that, you know, they can never bring up what they've done, you know, for their kids. But it's, do you say it in a way that the child is helpless? Like, oh, there's nothing I can do. I've, you know, mom's mad at me and, and there's nothing I can do. Or do you bring it up like, oh, there is something I can do. I can understand mom's point of view and let her know that I understand that, but here's why I was upset. And she'll listen to me and we'll go back and forth about it. And is that, at what age is that start working, would you say? I think it can happen all the way down because it's something that you want to it's just probably the way you structure the conversation is different. Yeah. So, so you might say to, um, you know, a, a four or a five-year-old, do you think that's really true that mommy never thinks about you? Do you think that's really true? And then you might say, you know, I don't think it's true because I love you very much. I want to hear what you think. But when you say it in that way, it hurts my feelings. And so you're educating the child like, yes, you can object, you can criticize me. But when you say it in that kind of way, that hurts. And we can talk about these issues, you know, like we are now, you know, face to face in a in a way that doesn't hurt. It just shares the information together. So that can go all the way down even to real little kids if you keep it simple. I always remind my kids that I'm a human with feelings and that I'm not just their mom and that, you know, my life doesn't fully revolve around them. And, um, you know, I, I, I sometimes will say this in a, in a fit of rage or I'll say, listen, guys, I need a break. I need a few minutes alone. I have my own needs and things that I need to get done. And it's not always about you. And, you know, I, and I think, you know, it's interesting. I think in doing that, I think I, uh, when I initially started saying things like that, I felt a little guilt about it, but now I see my daughter who's 13 say, I need some alone time. I need to, I need a break. I need to take some time for myself and, and my son too. And, and that's a healthy thing to teach. Yeah. Cause you're, cause you taught them that it's important to be self-aware. Um, it's important to know what you need and it's important to tell other people about that and ask for it from them. So what you're really modeling with that is you're really modeling emotional intimacy because you're telling them how it really is for you emotionally in that moment. I, I need to take some time for myself. I can't be all about you all the time or I'll get burnt out. I need this for me. 
that is an emotionally intimate statement because you really let them see you. You were, you were honest, authentic, and vulnerable with them. And like, and like you just said, they will model that because it's an easier way to live. Yeah. Especially this pandemic. <laughs> we've we've yeah. I've changed a lot of my parenting and a lot of you know, not feeling guilty about being like, Hey guys, I'm going to go to bed now. And I'm going to go, I'm going to go watch TV or whatever. And like, you're on your own. You're good. It's actually in some ways been, um, a blessing in disguise. What's the most effective technique in dealing with, um, an EIP who can be exhausting, whether it's a, a parent or a friend or, or somebody in our lives, what have you found to be the most effective? Yeah, the most effective thing, first of all, is that you move into a place of observation and detachment with them because that's anybody's point of strength when they're dealing with a difficult situation. Anybody who wades into the emotional waters and starts splashing around is not going to have a good result with anybody, right? But it's especially not going to have a good result with emotionally immature people because they get they can outreact you every time. I mean, they, they will escalate to a point where, you know, you will be in the dust. Um, so you're not going to beat them at that game. So if you become more self-contained and you become more objective and observational in your approach to them, and you sort of run a narration in your mind, like, uh, yep, yep, there's the, there's the rigidity. Yep, there's the feeling thing. Yep, there's the defensiveness. It keeps you calm, all right? Um, and it keeps you out of reactivity. And when you are calm, you can remember what it is that you really wanted out of, the, out of that interaction. Was your goal to have a fight with your parent or was your goal to have them understand that you weren't coming for Thanksgiving, for instance? And you, re- you keep returning to the outcome that you want from that interaction. When you do that, you can simply repeat, repeat, repeat. Because if they hear, if the, if the emotionally mature person hears something that they don't want to hear, they will ignore your boundaries and keep pressing. And the only, <laughs> the only response that you can have to that is to repeat your boundary. And by the way, this is like, this is parenting. I mean, it's doing the same thing with our kids too, right? I I had to learn a lesson um, that that was so interesting. Um, My brother is seven years older than me and um, my my parents got divorced. He was sort of not involved and it it did all fall on me and I kind of got put in the middle of it. And to this day, if my mother brings something up on that time, my brother has, his technique has always been to just ignore it. And so, so it's always come to me. And, uh, you know, I recently in the past few years have started to do what he does. I used to be resentful towards him because I'm like, why aren't you dealing with this? Why are you just ignoring it? And then I, had started to ignore things and just be like, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to engage in this topic. Let's change the subject. And wow, it's actually so empowering. And, and, and really, and, and I think being a parent helps you to do that better, even if it's with your own parents or other relationships in your life, because you do have to do that with children. And, and these are um, immature 
adults. It's very liberating, though, once you see that it actually works and and you take control over that. And, you know, it's it, it takes practice, though, because I think your immediate reaction is to just explode at, at, over things that you've been exploding about your whole life. And then, you know, it really takes a lot of work to try to not and to just you know, sort of ignore and, and move forward. When uh, our son was growing up, I, I had the advantage of being a psychologist, right? But my husband, uh, who uh, came from a family, very loving, so forth. But, you know, when dad said something, what dad said went. Um, so he he couldn't grasp at first the idea that if he told our son not to do something, that the next day he might do it. I, I had the benefit of, you know, saying, of being able to say to him, you know, it's all about repetition. It's repetition, repetition, repetition. When he's 25, he'll remember what you said. And my son, who is now 30, posted on his um, Instagram recently, he said, uh, and, and it was on uh, his dad's birthday. He said, I just have to give it to my dad that all the years that he said responsibility and accountability, I heard those words coming out of my mouth as I was talking to my team today. And I realized what I had gotten from him. <laughs> uh, that's great. That's great. I can't, I can't wait for those days. I, my mother always used to say this to me and I find myself saying it to my daughter too. And I, and I, it's probably wrong, but she's so she's, I can remember as a teenager, her going, Oh, I can't wait until you're a mother. What is the most important thing to remember? I, you, I think you touched on it a little bit, but I think once you accept that you're not going to change somebody, it, it's a lot easier to deal with that person. And I think um, for many years in many relationships in my life, I, I've tried to change people. And when you come to accept that they are who they are, and are you going to live with that person in your life the way that they are, that's a really important time to, to evaluate and figure it out. I think like the most important thing to remember when you're, when you're dealing with them, um, in addition to everything you just said, cause I cannot improve on that really. That's so essential. That part about accepting that you're not going to change someone and, and just imagine the difference in reaction. If somebody is coming at you, expecting you to change or somebody is is coming at you accepting who you are but still trying to reach you the things to uh remember about dealing with eips is that they are highly insecure okay i mean they may seem grandiose narcissistic the big boss um you know impenetrable whatever but man they are highly insecure if they've got these characteristics and they are all about defending themselves against a feeling that they're not worth anything. If you remember that, <laughs> you have a terror of being exposed as being worthless or unworthy, you are more than halfway home with them because they can't be open to reasoning or conversations about emotional topics if it goes anywhere near something that they can construe as an attack on their worthiness. They just are so incredibly sensitive and wounded in that area that, you know, it's it's like if someone's badly bruised, you do not help them deal better by pressing on that bruise. They can't accept boundaries without having hurt feelings. So if you think that you can 
present a boundary to them in such a reasonable, kind way that they don't have hurt feelings, you really need to rethink that because that's not going to (laughs) happen. They will take it personally. They will take it as being about them. And that's where it's so important. I would say this is the most important thing to remember. You know, A is try not to trigger them by getting overly emotional and critical of them. But then secondly, like we've been saying, keep it low key just keep repeating what it is that you want as your outcome. And remember that you're doing it for yourself. You're expressing whatever you're expressing to them because it's a part of your authenticity, maybe to express, but you're not doing it for them to change their mind or to try to reach them or change them because that won't work. Uh, Again, you're telling them, you're not okay the way you are. And none of us hear that without a a shot of anxiety going through us. But for an emotionally immature person, that anxiety is multiplied a million times because they feel so terrified of being judged unworthy and thereby rejected that they will really overreact to that. So if you just remember, you know, keep your, your own self-possession going and be realistic about what you can and can't accomplish and repeat what it is that you're heading for. That would be, to my mind, the most important thing to remember. That's great advice. Lindsay, I want to, I, I actually want to, um, I have a question from a uh, listener, but before I get to that, because it's it's somewhat related, how how do we do this work? How do we heal and forgive? And uh, at the same time, I'm going to ask you two questions at once. Is it ever a good idea to cut off contact with this person? And how do I know when I've gotten to that point? We have to start with our own self-awareness. If you are not aware of the emotional impact on you of dealing with the emotionally mature person, you're not going to be able to get yourself into a place where you can deal with them effectively. So, you know, anything that you do that increases your self-awareness, especially your emotional awareness is very important in doing this work. Um, that could be therapy. It could be reading. It could be journaling. It could be talking with friends, but you have to start out by accepting your own emotional reactions and becoming more and more authentic about how these things impact you. When you can do that, that's when you are able to um, sort of step back and become more self-contained in dealing with the emotionally immature person, which is going to give you a lot more choices in terms of your response to them than if you were reacting uh, unconsciously and um, emotionally. So when you're talking about forgiveness and, um, you know, getting along with them and whatever, I always put forgiveness aside. You know, some people have been through such horrendous experiences that, you know, they may never be ready or willing or able to forgive. And I, and I, so I just never make that a condition. I'm so glad you're saying that because I I think that's important to know. There's certain situations where somebody can and somebody really can't. Yeah. I mean, mean, God bless the saints. Okay. For the rest of us, that, that issue of forgiveness, meaning that you act as if it never happened or you 
um, understand the other person to the point where you're not angry with them anymore. I don't know how many of us can really attain that. But you can, instead of forgiveness, you can think about what is the best way to proceed. And that probably is not going to be fixating on how they mistreated you or whatever. It's probably going to be about asking yourself, what do I want out of my life now? And what is the type of relationship I'm willing to have with this parent in the future? To me, that's much more productive thinking than trying to get yourself into a pretzel shape of forgiveness. That would be the the way I would respond to, you know, how you uh, are going to deal with the person going forward. In um, some of the feedback, I, I got fortunately very little uh, negative feedback on the book, but it was interesting that that a few people said that I was cutting the EIPs too much slack and not recognizing that some people needed to cut off from their parents and not have contact with them. And I really felt like I had not been heard <laughs> with those responses, uh, those reviews, because I do say that it, it can get to a point where it is so toxic and so draining to be around them that you really do need to take a break. But I usually phrase it in terms of taking a break because that keeps it open-ended. And incidentally, all I do is present that as a possibility to my clients. I never suggest it, but I will lay out the damage that I see being done. Uh, you know, if that's going on. And I do present the option to them that they can take a break. They can take a hiatus from the relationship, which is often a stunning <laughs> thought to them because, you know, they're so unused to being able to set a boundary or think about themselves in that relationship. If the person, there, there are a couple of things that I think warrant that. One is that if you just can't stand it anymore, and if you are having things going on in your life, like if, if you're worn out from your kids, you have a very demanding job, you have a health problem, okay, you're in some kind of transition, and that parent will not respect the boundaries to give you the space that you need to either just cope or to heal, then that's a time when taking the break or the, the cut, cut off needs to occur just for your own health. The, probably the biggest reason why I don't, you know, come out of the gate suggesting that somebody break off contact with their parents is that uh, there's a family therapist by the name of Murray Bowen who did this whole analysis of what he called the emotional cutoff in families. And he said that, you know, people would take off and they would they would leave and they would go to, you know, 3000 miles away. But the dynamic kind of froze internally at that point. So it wasn't like the person had solved anything. It wasn't that they had grown in any way. They had just put 3,000 miles between them. And so cutting off from emotionally immature parents, at least, doesn't guarantee that you are free of them internally. That work has to occur independent of how much you see them or don't see them. So I would just encourage people to realize that that internal work has to happen, even if you feel like you've gotten away from them and don't have to have contact, 
We don't want you to stay in a state of being kind of frozen in that internalization of that relationship. We want you to find yourself again, independent of them. I know I'm taking up too much of your time, but I'm, I wanted to, um, ha- I have one question that I think is interesting and, and would love to hear your opinion on. So this is from somebody who says, how do couples cope in a marriage when they have both been affected by emotionally immature parents um, at op- opposite ends of the spectrum. So for example, the wife's mom is, um, I, mean, I know you don't like this word, but narcissistic in the true sense of the definition. And the husband's mother is uh, overbearing and overly intrusive, you know, boundaryless, but to, it satisfies her lack of a healthy childhood. I know that's a lot longer session <laughs> of work, but if you had a, a small piece of advice. Yeah. And we come back to that gold standard of self-awareness because, you know, know thyself is like the, the, uh, the biggest thing here. If you are aware that you have these sensitivities and triggers, like the feeling that someone's going to trounce uh, over your boundaries or that somebody's going to make it all about them. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty safe guess that you might be uh, sensitized to that in your spouse or your mate. But to be aware of that gives you that opportunity to step back and ask yourself, okay, is this them or is this something from my past that I'm reacting to? And if there is uncertainty about that, you have the option of doing what you could not do both spouses have the option of doing this. They can go to each other and say, you know, when this happened, it made me feel this way. Is that what you intended? And that just helps. Um, Brene Brown has done a marvelous approach to this. God, everybody references Brene Brown. It's so it, it, she really is an amazing woman because every time I have a guest on here, they're referencing her. Yeah, no, she really is. I mean, she really hit the heart of the matter um, with her with her work on vulnerability and transparency. But um, I think it's on her Daring Greatly special on Netflix. Talks about this technique that she used with her husband where she goes to him when he's done something that's hurt her feelings or, or um, angered her. And she says, you know, the story I'm telling myself about this is, you know, that you don't care or you were competing with me or you were, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then she says, is that what you intended? And that is a great way of filtering out old stuff and taking it off and asking your spouse to take it off of them and allow you to help get it back in, into its proper place, which might really be about how you were treated as a child as opposed to how you're being treated now. And it could be that they would say, well, I didn't think I was doing that, but you know, maybe I was. <laughs> Yeah, because that's how I learned that that you know people act with each other. You can have a discussion, but but that leading with your with your feelings and asking the other person is that what you intended is a way to get the past back in the past and deal with what's happening in the present in a different way. Thank you so much for being here today, and obviously you can 
buy Lindsay's book on uh, Amazon. I'm going to post a link um, in the show notes as well as on Instagram stories, because I think I got a few people excited just doing a live today. And you have a second book, uh, correct? That, that was a follow-up to this book. And what is that? Yeah, that one is called Recovering from Emotionally Immature Parents. Oh, I have to get that one. It has you know some a recapitulation of the first book just to get people oriented, but it has a lot more practical tools about what to say and and how to act and all that, you know, kind of more nuts and bolts stuff with the parent. And it also has more discussion in there about the impact on your own self-development and your own inner world uh, when you grow up with emotionally mature parents. So it's got substantive additional material and as well as having the, um, the practical tools in it. Great. I will, I will go by that very soon. <laughs> well, thank you again. And um, if, if any listeners uh, have questions about today's podcast, uh, f- feel free to post them in the Facebook group. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. This, is, this has been an absolutely delightful conversation. I've taken so many notes because so many of the things that, that you said, Doreen, really helped me to reconceptualize some of the the points and I'm always trying to make it better. Uh, so thank you for, for your help. <laughs> we can have a separate help. conversation off of there. <laughs> I can give you a lot. <laughs> okay. But, Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to give yourself permission and know that you are not alone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Reviews are always appreciated. And you can reach me by email at it's not a crisis at Gmail, Instagram, it's not a crisis podcast. And please join our Facebook group as well. Until next time, just remember it's not a crisis. <laughs>